Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Underneath the Word of God and I encourage you to ask your children what they learned this morning. Uh, trust that uh, they will give you great truth about our Savior. Why don't you take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I just want to encourage you that the pace that we go in, in the, in the exposition of the Scriptures is, is, is where the, the Spirit leads your pastor. So, we um, normally go a little bit slower than faster here, so I'll have to say there's so much truth. And part of that is, is that throughout the years that I've been here, um, my desire is never to go back to a book I've already preached. Does that make sense? And so we're going to try to soak as much as we can out of the, the text and, and the book that we find ourselves in. And uh, I say that just to want you to have patience with me because there's some rich things going on here. And I want you to grasp it for your Christian life. The title of today's sermon is Meeting the Demands of Ministry. Let us begin by reading the scriptures, the inspired word of God, starting in verse 13. Our narrative says this, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonajuris, butchered that, which means sons of thunder and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the, the, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let us pray. Father, we go to your word with a desire for the Spirit to teach us. We thank you for that wonderful salvation that you've given us, and and you have given us as you departed, as you ascended the Holy Spirit, to be able to interpret, to understand, to live in such a way that to live rightly according to the truth. And so we ask that you use your word and the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. So many demands upon your life, pressure of life. And what you do in this text, Father, is that you give us some insight so we too may understand what it means to, to walk in your ways when life is busy, 
when things go hectic. And so be with your preacher. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you remember from last week, we saw a summary passage. It was a, a passage that was kind of a transition from what has already been preached to, to what will be launched into leading up through chapter 6. Remember, Jesus healed, performed many miracle after miracle after miracle, and the crowds began to grow and grow and grow. For that matter, the crowds came in grove after grove. All this is because he was doing something that was miraculous and from the hand of God. But performing miracles wasn't his main purpose. We've been seeing that in the Gospel of Mark. His main goal was to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand, to repent and believe. The problem was that the religious leaders of the day didn't like what he was doing. Not only was he gaining a popularity that was far unmatched to whatever their, their religious authority had, but they didn't like the fact that Jesus was doing things that was out of normal for them. Jesus didn't follow their, their rules. And because of that, they wanted him killed. However, they could think that they were in control, but listen, beloved, as much as the, the narrative gives us an understanding of the situation, we understood even last week and throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is always in control. He's sovereign with divine authority. And so when we look at the narratives, especially in the Gospels with Christ, he's controlling everything according to the will and the plan of God. And so going forward, we will see the rest of, of Mark chapter 3, uh, ending in, in Mark chapter 6, a greater intensity of this situation. More miracles, greater hatred, crowds coming, and Jesus teaching. He will continue to heal, perform miracles, cast out demons. He will put the religious leaders in their place and continue to point to a gospel message that, that will save them. This, no doubt, as we saw last week, was pressure upon pressure upon Christ in the ministry. The people wanted more and more from him. The religious leaders wanted him. However, there was a growing amount of people who had heard the gospel message. Repentance and faith was happening Disciples were being made. The ministry was, was flourishing underneath the plan of a sovereign God. And Jesus had to meet the demand of that ministry. Of course, this pressure didn't surprise Christ. He foreknew that this would be the plan of his days in his earthly ministry. He knew that these Pressures of ministries would, would be upon him. He also knew exactly who he was going to call. He knew that he was going to, to be doing what is next. Why? Because he foreknew it from eternity past. He calls 12 apostles who will be in training 
until he ascends. These apostles, Scripture tells us, in turn, after Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, they became the foundation, what we call the church. They would be left in charge of carrying forth the message. This gospel message that Jesus saved sinners. They would be leaders of the first church and in turn was used to write inspired, God-inspired epistles on how the church would function. Even their testimony is noted in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, as men who turned the world upside down. And so let us turn our attention to this, and we get our introduction to the calling of these 12. And I want you to see, uh, first and foremost, at the beginning of all this, in verse 13, he appoints the 12. He, He literally summons them to come. Look again at verse 13. It reads, and he went up to the mountain... I went up on the mountain, excuse me, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. I mean, finally, Jesus escapes the crowd, right? And he goes up on a mountain. Now, what's interesting, Mark doesn't mention the mountain. Remember the the context where he's at. He's by the Sea of Galilee. And the mountainside would, 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 of course, surround And maybe, Lord willing, one of these days we're going to lead a trip to Israel. We'll see this. But all this to say, you have a mountainside that that would encompass the Sea of Galilee, which is, in other words, a big lake. Now, we get the indication from the parallel passage in, in the Gospel of Luke that before he ascends and before he calls... Luke 6.12 says this, that before Jesus went up to the mountain, he spent the night in prayer. Luke 6.12 reads this, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Significant. God himself praying to God the Father, modeling the importance of prayer. Uh, And often when you think about Jesus and his his ability to pray and to intercede and, and, and show us exactly what we need to do and how we need to rely on God the Father, we often saw Jesus pray before something magnificent is going to happen. He's not praying to change the mind of God or the will of God, but just the opposite. He is confirming with God the Father that what was to come next is his divine approval. I mean, you think about this. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Before he was arrested, before he was crucified, he spent the night praying about his disciples, his apostles, those who would come to faith afterwards. Of course, we call that time of prayer in in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. But he models prayer. He reminds us to pray. The simple fact of the matter is, is if Jesus desired to pray, and here's the application, right? Before we even get out of the chute, if Jesus is going to pray when life was pressing all around him, how much more should we? Sometimes we 
live in the busyness of life and we're so caught up in the to-do list that we forget the prayer list. Where we humble ourselves and bow in prayer. Seeking to have our minds steadfast on the decisions that are going to be made in the midst of that day that are going to be focused on the will and the plan and the purpose of God. In no means am I trying to say that the pressures that Jesus experienced is the same thing that we experience, but we do experience some sort of pressures. In the church life, we reach out to the ill. You've got ministries that you serve in. You, you, you have situations that, that are going out. We, need, we feed on Tuesday. We reach out to the needy. There's all kinds of dynamics that are going on. And yet, we avoid the power of Christ when we don't pray. If anything, when life gets pressured by the demands of ministry and the demands of life, what we all need the most is to be in prayer with our mighty God. I love the title of this book. I don't approve of the author, but, but it, it reminds me every time I see it. There's a book written by Bill Hybels that says, Too Busy Not to Pray. I love the title. Didn't like what was inside the cover. Too busy not to pray. And so right out of the shoot, the shepherding moment for our souls at this time is, is to evaluate, are we praying? And you think about that. That doesn't take much out of your life, does it? It doesn't. To be consumed with intercession with prayer and, and asking for direction. I guess my point is this, that may God drive within us a desire to pray. I learned early on in ministry that when people would share prayer requests with me, I often would want to stop right there because I know me. You share me your prayer request and I go about my day and I forget about all the things that I need to pray for. And so often I desire to, to stop. You give me a prayer request, let's stop and let's pray. Doesn't mean that I don't stop praying throughout the days and throughout the weeks, but I do know this, that, that, that we can get together as Christian and Christian and be able to know that we're, as being in Christ Jesus, we can go to him in prayer. Jesus models that for us. Now, getting back to Mark 3, verse 13, Scripture tells us that Jesus went up or ascended the mountain. And look what it says there. And summoned those he, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. I mean, not only is, is prayer a marker by Christ himself, that God was going to continue to reveal his redemptive purposes. And, and, and Jesus is following these things. He's obedient to these things. He's purposeful in these things. But when we often think about Jesus ascending a mountain, I mean, we've got to reflect back to, to how God often with Israel, the place in which he spoke to them, the place in which he, he did things was what? On top of a mountain. 
I think of Exodus 3, Mount Sinai. I think of of Moses ascending to see the glory of the Lord, the glory of God. All this took place on a mountain. So it is a monumental task in calling the 12 apostles. He's praying on top of a mountain. And he summons those whom he himself wanted. Do you see that? And they came, Scripture says. The Greek word for summons here has the idea of authoritatively calling somebody unto yourself. It wasn't one of these things where it's kind of like this morning, right? Sit down. You guys don't necessarily obey. But Jesus called and they came. Divine summons. Again, this points to a divine sovereignty over the situation. He is totally in control. Remember, Mark has already pointed to the call of of four fishermen in chapter 1. He calls a tax collector in chapter chapter 2. He's already called five of his apostles, but there's seven more that need to be gathered. And even 12, I think, is significant for us. When you think about Israel... And, the, and, and in light of starting the church, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, the connection between the two. Twelve, what I like to call, now listen to me here, big A apostles. I think that's important to distinguish. We'll unfold that either in today's sermon or next sermon, but the importance and the role of the apostles and, and how they have were, were called for a purpose to start the church, and we find ourselves today with, with no more big A apostles. I'll give you more color on that in a bit. Remember, this isn't your normal way to call disciples. Remember when a rabbi, he would go about studying the law, he would teach his ways, and, and, and people would follow. And, and much like today, where students are going off from, from high school to college, they're choosing which school that they want to sit under, and which professors, and, and all those things. That was the norm of the day. But Jesus, of course, always doing things accordingly to a divine purpose and a divine will. He calls his disciples, and he knows them by name. Often the disciple would would choose their teacher, but not this case. The teacher is calling his disciples. And this is what I love about our God. In his omniscience, his all-knowingness, he is never surprised whom he draws, whom he calls. Listen, no one will sneak into heaven unannounced or unknown. Christ knows each of his disciples by name. Scripture is replete on this. I want to give you uh, some evidence of that. Listen and look to the screen, to these awesome verses that point this truth out. Isaiah 43.1, speaking to Israel as he called them out to his people, he says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. John 10, 
Verse 27, 28, Jesus says in this analogy of the shepherd and the sheep, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 2 Timothy 2, 19, Paul says this, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. It makes sense for us. For God to be God, he must know all those whom he will save. I mean, that is, the, that is paramount to, to his attributes of who he is. He knows all that he saves. Not just the 12 apostles, but all his disciples. When we think about the Greek word that is translated church, ekklesia, a compound word, it has the idea of this theological truth that God knows everybody that comes to him. Everybody that he receives, everybody that he knows he receives. The idea of divine sovereign control displayed even in that word. It simply means the called out ones. That is us who have repented and believed in Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are called out of this world and into the kingdom of God. That's what happens when you repent and believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. And when Jesus calls and saves a person, he's calling that person unto himself to belong to him. I mean, that's what's so beautiful. We sing songs like Amazing Grace. We sing songs that, that draw us to this reality that why in the world would he save a wretch like me? I was blind and lost, but now I see because of the grace and mercy of Christ. When Jesus calls... He saves, and he calls you unto himself for the purposes to know him and obey him. I mean, that is what the, the summation of the gospel, that's exactly what it does. The gospel calls sinners to come unto him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now understand something. This shouldn't make you antsy. This, this is biblical truth. We want a God who knows. The security in his, his attributes. All of his omniscience, like I say, is in the realm of his Godhood. This is who he is. He knows from eternity past all those whom he will call in eternity future. The apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I mean, he knows exactly in each of those cities who, he, who will be his. He goes on to say, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest of measure. Now, it must be said, as much as God is divine, sovereign, and knows all things, 
there is a running parallel with his divine foreknowledge that we call man's responsibility. When the gospel is presented for sinners to come to Christ, you must respond. You must either receive him or reject him. And by the way, at the judgment seat of Christ, that is what you'll be judged on. Not how good you were, not what you did in church, not what you did for the community. But did you receive Christ or did you reject him? Running parallel with his divine foreknowledge is man's responsibility to receive Christ. How does that work? I don't know. But I'm okay with that tension. I'm okay with a God who knows all things. I'm okay with the, with the call for me to receive a Savior. For the disciple of Christ, the one whom God calls, he must respond by receiving Christ's grace. Of course, that is through repentance and having faith in what he has done on the cross through his resurrection, through his ascension. Each man, like I said, is responsible at the judgment seat of Christ for either the receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What that puts is that puts man without excuse. And God in his justice and his righteousness has every right to either receive or to condemn those who receive his son or not. The onus is on you. That's why we constantly preach the gospel. Not only was it given to the church, this message that the church holds, but it is a call for the preacher to make sure that, that she sends out the message that redeems souls that depends on their eternity. Either heaven or hell is staked on the fact if you receive Christ or not. The onus is on you. You must have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by God. That's why we have Hebrews, right? The hall of faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith. I mean, it goes on and on. Jacob, by faith. Rahab. By, I mean, just goes on and on. By faith, you are justified by God. But what I want you to see, and this is a little bit more the nuances and why we go a little bit slower here. But I want you to see that every time Christ saves an individual, he pulls them out of the world and places them within his church. Coming to Christ is an individual act of faith, but in so doing, Christ places you in his institution that he has created called the church, where he is the head. I think this is so important, especially in a day and age where ecclesiology is all over the place. I can do church in the mountains. I can go church, do this. And, and you have situations where the enemy desires for you not to come to church. We must not forget that the Christian life is to be flushed out in his body where he is the head called the church. For Christ places his redeemed people in the church to learn together, to grow together, to carry one another's burdens together, to serve each other together, to worship together. That is why this church will always be open until he takes it out of this world. 
The church will always be open. We will always gather. We will always desire to be together. And when the world comes to take this facility, remember the church is not a facility. It is the called out ones. We'll just meet in my backyard, your backyard, up the street, in the tent. The world cannot shut out the body of Christ. Church is essential because Christ has called and formed the church in which he places you out of the world and places you in the church, which he is the head of. So in meeting the demands of ministry, it has always been in the divine and sovereign plan of God to call 12 apostles. It was always the plan and divine sovereignty of God to call sinners and place them within his church. I mean, this is what Jesus does. I mean, he doesn't call them and leave them hanging. And this is maybe an indictment against today's modern evangelism. We just got to get them saved. Listen, you get them saved by the grace of Christ, and then you disciple them in the church. You equip them. You strengthen them. You show them all the glory of why it is that we follow and obey Christ. Jesus doesn't just call 12 apostles so that they can be part of the club and have a badge on their lapel. He calls them for a purpose and for a reason. And by the way, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you're called for a purpose and a reason. He has a role for them. This is where we're moving. Now we're nearing back to the 12 apostles. He has a role for them that is to be carried out by them. Which, by the way, 11 of them obeyed and one of them didn't. But let's turn to this role, and it's a threefold role. And we're going to get through just one of these roles by the time that we have left, okay? Look at verse 14 and 15. It reads there, it says, And he appointed 12 so that, purpose clause, right? so that they would be with him, that's one, and that he could send them out to preach, that is two, verse 15, and to have authority to cast out demons, that is three. Notice Jesus didn't call eight, 10, 20, 30, he called 12. Like I alluded to earlier, it should remind us of the 12 tribes of Israel this new institution called the church, in which when we read out of the book of Ephesians, that is a book about the mystery of the church. As Paul unfolds it. Of course, inspired by, by God. But let's look at this first role. First it was so that they would be with him, and this is so beautiful. That's why I want to kind of focus in on this. And by the way, this is the truth for every called disciple. Jesus calls you to be with him. Theologians call this union with Christ. Have you ever heard this? And this is so significant. I want your ears to be attentive to this. Your Christian life will go well if you understand what it means to be in Christ Jesus. This union with Christ. I think it's a doctrine that's often missed where we think that I received Jesus, but I'm still going to do what Bear wants to do. 
And so we have this fighting competition about who's going to be Lord of your life, either you or Jesus. Let me encourage you. It's best to have Jesus be Lord of your life. But this is such an important doctrine, a union in Christ. I think it is often missed in our salvation, our understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. So I want to spend a little bit of time here with this. When we think of Christ and salvation for us, he has done so much for us, right? I mean, that's why we read Ephesians chapter 1, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. The spiritual storehouse of heaven is open to the believer. Everything is granted to you in Christ. And that's the key. You must be in Christ in order to receive the blessings that he gives you. Now, when you think about your salvation, most of these blessings have, have positionally been placed in your storehouse as a Christian when you first believed. You have believed, you've repented, you've turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior, yet that event or experience, I must tell you, the scripture says it's not a one-time event because he's given you salvation in Christ and he's opened up the storehouse that has continual effects that continues on in your present life. And by the way, it will be presented in its fullness, in glory, in heaven. Eternity future. You and I both know that we, we don't live the Christian life in the past, but yet we are blessed because of it. The past redemption has, has however, a present-day effect that changes the course of your life and how you live today. I think of scriptures, and I could have pointed this out, but and I can give you some further scriptures on this, but the, the Greek word for, for salvation is zotso, and it's often used in past tense, present tense, and future tense. He's just not talking about an act that happened back then that you are to reflect on. Yes, reflect on it, but understand that that salvation has brought you to the present day where you are living in that grace. And so this great salvation that Christ calls us to and we receive through faith consumes our redeemed life. Did you hear that word? Consumes. I don't care if you know me as bear. I do and want you to know me as being, however, a person in Christ. A simple definition of this union with Christ is a connection where the believer has in Christ, and it's simply this, the believer's in Christ and Christ is in the believer. That's what it means to be in union with Jesus. It makes sense that our Christian life, that we are dependent upon Christ. I mean, the very fact that you have a breath is by the grace of Christ, a benefit that comes, yes, even to the pagan, yes, but more so for the believer who understands this living relationship that he has in Jesus. I mean, you think about it. Everything that you are depends upon Christ. Your personal sanctification as you grow in Christ is dependent upon him. Your obedience to do the things of Christ is dependent upon him. Everything that we are in Christ is dependent upon Christ. 
Which, by the way, I'm okay having all my eggs in that basket. This simple truth, this doctrine of the union in Christ is played out in the scriptures and it's often with the preposition so much so that I wanted you to see that even in Ephesians chapter one, the simple in him. We see this in scriptures as well, not only in Christ, but with Christ, abiding in Christ, being joined with Christ. Let me give you a few of these so you can get the gist. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look at the screen. It says, therefore, if anyone is, what does it say? In Christ. He's a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. What we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This doctrine of union in Christ is not just isolated to the book of Ephesians. I mean, it is all over the place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangels, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, you think about when you mark up your Bibles, it's okay if you do. I mean, take a marker and just start maybe from here on out. Look at the end in Christ, and just highlight those. I think you're going to be amazed of all the truth that is centered on the fact that we must be in Christ in order to walk this Christ-like life. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are we in Christ, but the scriptures point to the other side of this relationship, that Christ is in us. Christ is said to be in the believer, Colossians 1.27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How about Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life in which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. John 15, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, this is the significance of our understanding of what it means to live for Christ. 
You live in him. And he lives in you. I mean, that should so mark your thinking that when you wake up in the morning, how dare you would think about even sinning? It should so mark us in knowing that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me that when I interact with the world, they see Christ. I mean, Scripture after Scripture points to this reality when somebody repents and believes that the only conclusion that you can draw is that the the born-again believer His life is based on being in Christ and Christ in him. Our hope and glory is Christ in us. Our spiritual vitality is drawn from the indwelling presence of Christ in us. So much so, I, I, I want you to grasp this. Not only is it a theological truth to understand and believe, but there's implications to live it out. How do we live out some of this, right? This is a simple yet profound truth, but it has great implications for the life of the believer. Here are a few of them. First, we are accounted righteous as righteous because of this union with Christ. Do you understand what Christ is doing for you? If you can't receive salvation on your own works, Somebody had to die die and save you and resurrect and receive the wrath of God. He imputes a righteousness that is not your own, that when you stand before God the Father, God the Father sees you in Christ Jesus. He sees his son's righteousness in you. That's why the Apostle Paul could say this in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of our union with Christ, we have a right standing in the face of the law and in the face of God. God sees Christ's righteousness in us, and thus there is no condemnation. It is this righteousness that he gives you that is not your own but is his, but because of this union in Christ, you have it. There's a second implication. Not only are we accounted and given an imputed righteousness that is not our own because of this union by being in Christ Jesus, we now, I've been alluding to it, we live in Christ's strength and power. Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 4.13. When you think about that passage and all the things that he's content with, right? He says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul looks at life and says, you know what? I'm content in Christ. I can be sufficient in his, in his goodness and his kindness. I can do all things because of Christ. Paul understood how to live a, a content life in Christ because he understood where he resided in Christ. Again, Galatians 2.20. I mean, this verse, if you want to memorize just one, this is it. Where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. You've already seen this, right? And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life, the implication of that, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
That is the verse that helps us understand this union with Christ. And I love what he says, it is no longer I who live. How much more in our Christian lives do we need to get rid of ourselves and allow Christ to be who he is? How about 2 Corinthians 12, 9? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The joy of being in Christ and Christ in you is that you live out the power of the salvation in his sufficiency in your life. A third implication. And this one might concern you, but it shouldn't. A third implication of this union with Christ is just because he has suffered, we too will suffer like Christ. That's why we can face this world with boldness, knowing that persecution is going to come. They persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. Jesus said in John 15, 20, remember that the world, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I mean, this is coming from all different angles. The pressure of the world to, to, to drive you away from who you are in Christ Jesus. To shut the mouth of the church. To shut the mouth of the scriptures. To cancel your life. Why? Because you're living it for Christ. Peter points to the suffering in 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you have shared the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. There's your heart attitude, rejoice. Rejoice when you're suffering for the things of Christ. There's a fourth and final application I'll end here. And that is this union with Christ, not only does it cause us to suffer with him, but beloved, you must also see that you will also reign with him in eternity. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Luke chapter 22, where Jesus said that because they have continued, this is verse 24 through 30, but because they have continued with him in trials as a summation of this verse, he would give them prominence. I mean, can you see how important this doctrine of union with Christ is? It's not usually in our doctrinal verbiage, but it should be. It should be something that we talk about. It's something that we're teaching our children, that we're, that we're engaging our, our husband or our wife, we're engaging our fellow brother and sister in Christ, understanding that Christ is sufficient and he lives in you, and you and him. I mean, can you see how glorious this is? I mean, the church should be echoing this doctrine time and time again about our union with Jesus. Because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, we are accounted as being righteous because of him. Because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you live out in the power of the Christian life in him. 
And because of this union, yes, we will suffer in Christ, but one day we will reign with him. Listen, praise be to Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, hopefully, you will be able to chew on this doctrine. And when you're reading the scriptures, you can see the importance of a, a powerful preposition of what it means to be in Christ. I think there's more implications than the, what I've alluded to. And may you live in those things. May you dwell in those things. Lord willing, we'll pick up Mark chapter 3 with a continual aspect of the roles. But if you can take one takeaway, when Jesus calls, he wants you to be with him, in him, and you, and he live life in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the day. Simplicity of the truth and yet the depth of it. We, we marvel at this doctrine that we call union in Christ, with Christ. Father, may that radically change our, our, our way that we, we think about life. When we have decisions that are before us. We trust you and your wisdom and your truth knowing that your discernment and your wisdom is always best. May we rely on you for this life, for we know that we will rely on you for the eternal life. And so we love you. And may you cause us to be all the more like Christ. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who has died who has resurrected, who has ascended and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is waiting for the appropriate time to come back again to establish the eternal kingdom. This is where we find ourselves. May you find us faithful in living out the Christian life according to your truth. May we delight in obeying you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. MV Bible.